Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a look at the role of missiles in Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how Kiev is defending itself against Vladimir Putin's aggression. But first, joining me now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the Biden administration's 2023 defense budget request, the week ahead, and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks as always for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago, particularly on budget day. Uh, exactly. It's a day that we live for. We celebrate this day uh, every year. Um, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Uh, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, the joy that we feel is also shared by so many uh, in our audience who look at this day as a great day. Um as widely anticipated, uh, Byron, the Biden administration submitted its uh, $5.8 trillion uh, budget request to Congress uh, this morning. Uh, a lot of deficit reduction measures uh, in there to reduce the rate of, um, you know, the pace at which the national debt is, is piling up. Uh, this spending measure also includes, as we expected, $773 billion uh, for the Pentagon, a 7% increase that includes more uh, research and defense fun uh, funding, uh, a new space-based missile uh, warning system, as well as a new uh, anti-ballistic uh, missile uh, interceptor. Uh, the total defense request that includes the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons tab and some other accounts comes to about 813, again, what we expected. From your standpoint, what are the key takeaways uh, of this budget request, and are there any surprises from your perspective? Well, obviously, Vago, it's early. I mean, it's not just budget day. This is probably going to be more like budget month, <clears throat> because we really aren't going to get the, the budget justification books for a couple of more weeks. And I think, you know, there's one other nuance that um, I find kind of intriguing. It looks like in the OMB tables that have been released, the FY22 number is an estimate, um, not what was appropriated. So, if you look at, you know, FY22 appropriations, the DOD increases about 4%. Uh, same with, same with the, um, the 050, the broader defense account that you mentioned. Um, but, you know, it is interesting because with the OMB tables, you can, you know, they, there's a <clears throat> plan uh, really going out for 10 years. I just kind of focus on the five because, uh, you know, 10 years is, is a, a long time to try and project. And as we are all well aware, things certainly do change. I mean, my initial takeaway was no real surprise. Um, the 2024 number, you know, the administration is looking for another 4% increase. Then it kind of flattens out at 1% to 2% um, annually. This is the 050 defense number, the broader defense number than DOD. But the DOD numbers are pretty much in line too with that kind of 4% growth in 24 and then 1% to 2% afterwards. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's hard to tell exactly, you know, um, what's instead going Instead of uh, focusing... Oh, wait a minute. Start uh, again? Uh, uh, yeah, start that last one again. Um, yeah, where do I... We hard, it's hard to tell. Well, it's, it's hard to tell. Obviously, there's no detail yet. Um, DOD is going to brief on, on the budget request uh, this afternoon of, of March 28th. So 
We'll have a lot more details on some of the individual programs <clears throat> in FY23. You know, there may be some hints about what's going on in the out years, but th that's where the justification books really come in, in handy in, in detailing, you know, what's going on in individual programs uh, for procurement and research and development test evaluation. Uh, and indeed, and, and we uh, suggest that folks uh, obviously, check out the budget documentation that uh, is being released, uh, as well as check out the uh, Zoom, uh, the, the YouTube video that's doubt, doubtless uh, going to be posted um, by the administration that uh, starts with Deputy Defense Secretary uh, Dr. Hicks uh, and uh, Comptroller Mike McCord, and then goes through each of the military services over the course of the day. Um, the budget is always a starting point. Members of Congress, Byron, have made it clear that uh, they would like to see more spending. Obviously, there is the inflation question. It's, it's great that the 773 number is 7% higher uh, than uh, the year before. On the other hand, not so much if, of course, you're counting, you know, tens of billions of dollars in additional inflation costs that uh, are not accommodated, perhaps, uh, by, by the budget, right? I mean, you end up then treading uh, water and, and still making tough choices. Where do you think Congress is going to take this ultimately? Well, you know, you had GOP members of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee put out this uh, letter, you know, basically requesting uh, kind of the 5% real growth. Now, they really didn't say what inflation assumption they were using. Um, I kind of think, you know, that's uh, be careful what you wish for number because there's still so much in flux right now. We, we, you know, is that too much or too little quite bluntly? And I think a lot of that's really gonna depend on what assessments emerge of Russia's military capability um, in, in the possible wake of um, some kind of ceasefire in Ukraine and an assessment about, you know, what, what do they have left? How well did they perform? What are they able to do in the future under a very harsh sanctions regime um, and export control regime? So. Uh, and I also think just for industry, you know, there, there's another point here where, look, if I look at the out-year budget projections for operations and maintenance and military construction, they're still pretty flat. And, you know, if you look at things like the organic industrial base for the department, the, the Navy shipyards, for example, um, O&M, you know, that's flat, really? These are nominal numbers that don't reflect any of the inflationary pressures that are likely to be evidence, as well as um, <clears throat> a need to modernize some of these organic facilities. So uh, from a starting point, yes, there's going to be upside. Um, I believe, you know, I think the simple fact that you, you've got a midterm election year and, <clears throat> um, you know, <laughs> GOP making this request for uh, a growth rate closer to inflation, um, they're likely to see that happen. Uh, when, when appropriations are finally completed. But, you know, against kind of a strategic backdrop that could be, that could change pretty significantly, um, I think there's a lot more at play here than, than maybe these numbers and maybe even what the GOP numbers suggest. Um, do you, how do you put this uh, request in historical context? I mean, you always like to include in your numbers data that goes back to 1950. Um, this is kind of a, pretty abrupt toggle, isn't it? Um, not really. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's ironic because it's a bigger budget than the Trump administration had been requesting in there. If you look at their plans a couple of years ago and, you know, I, I just kind of, I'll say this. I think um, that these, these out year numbers, 
you know, can be crafted with the idea that, oh, the deficit is what we're really going to attack. But at the end of the day, you know, national security needs, as we've seen over the last two or three years, um, <clears throat> could certainly propel that number far higher than it, than is currently being projected. So, um, but I, I think, you know, I was really toggling off the, um, what kind of number you might get if you assume, you know, a 7% underlying rate of inflation and 5% on top of that. I mean, 12% growth is really quite substantial in nominal terms for the Department of Defense uh, from a historic standpoint. I mean, you really have to go back to the first two or three years of the Reagan administration um, to find that kind of growth rate. Uh, you know, the, the submission that we've seen is really kind of more in line with, with what a typical... Uh, rate of growth would be, but I, I think it was that what I was really um, keying off of was the, the GOP demand for the 5% real growth. And again, you know, that, that was put out with any, uh, without any underlying inflation assumption. And as you know, if you look at CPI, we're 7% or more. So um, it's going to be interesting to see if, if people start hanging um, a real number on this, not just kind of a percent without a baseline on it. You know, Byron, defense spending uh, could go up as much as 12%, right? But at the same time, you pointed out in your note, right, be careful what you wish for. What do you mean by that when you when you say that? Well, look, there's still a populist element in Congress that really could start pushing back against defense contractor profitability and defense contractor capital uh, allocation, particularly when so much money goes to share buybacks. I mean, if, if this, you know, if this increase... Uh, was to, again, you know, be used by contractors really just to benefit their shareholders and, for example, not increase their own IRAD spending, there's a risk that uh, you could see some people in Congress talk about having hearings, for example, on industry profitability and cash flow, capital allocation. I mean, I, I'm just picking off the, uh, you know, what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry and high drug prices. And now you're seeing pushback against the energy sector in the United States, <clears throat> which is, you know, there are calls for uh, energy companies to expand production. And they're saying, well, wait a second, we've got to, we, we got to, we care more about our, our shareholders uh, and we're not going to just add capital willy nilly to, to lower the price of energy. So that same kind of tension is a potential risk for defense in, in a, you know, kind of turbocharged budget growth environment. Obviously, as we record this, uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky uh, today that said that he would consider neutrality for uh, Ukraine. Russia obviously has a bundle of other um, things uh, that it wants to see the leadership in Kiev also accept, including uh, independence for Donbass uh, and Luhansk and uh, acknowledgement that Crimea is Russian. Effectively, um, it wants to get the um, government uh, that has been uh, subjected to an unprovoked and illegal invasion to accept uh, the might makes right borders that the 2014 uh, invasion um, uh, drew uh, or, or we ended up with. Um, ultimately, where do you think this conflict is going? What are the dynamics around it? One of the points you made in one of your notes, uh, Byron, was that you do not expect defense spending nor sanctions to snap back, right? I mean, the Russians are asking, demanding, in fact, an immediate um, cessation of, of sanctions. I think the president made clear in his comments over the weekend, as well as in Europe last week, 
that's not going to happen. And in fact, sanctions should be increased. What are the odds you're putting on chemical, nuclear, biological use, as well as what the contours of this conflict look like and when it ends and how it ends and what it means? Well, look, I think one of the starting points was just um, there's not, to me, really good, reliable information that's been put out by Ukraine or by Russia on losses that they're incurring, that they're inflicting on the other, their, their, uh, their opponent in this war. Um, there is some open source data that I played with um, that looked at, you know, this one guy basically takes all imagery he can find if it's video or pictures and tries to um, tabulate, you know, what are Russian equipment losses. And if you look at his numbers, um, and compare them to data that the International Institute for Strategic Study posts on uh, their military balance, their annual publication. Um, you know, comparing Russian losses to the Russian army inventory, uh, they've lost about 14% of their main battle tanks in a month of, of conflict. And so, you know, at, at some point, you know, <laughs> they have a large number of tanks uh, in storage but the condition of those tanks, um, how easily they can be brought out, they still would have to train crews, et cetera. So I just think, you know, this level of loss, and we don't know what the losses are on the Ukrainian side. I, I keep you know, pointing that out because it's, it's just an uncertainty. I mean, they're fighting very well, but they are not getting resupplied uh, other than the stuff that they capture from the Russians and, you know, the shape that that equipment may be in and their ability to... to uh, sustain it is also a question mark. So I think, um, you know, base case, there'll probably be some kind of uh, wind down. I, I don't want to say a complete cessation and a final agreement, but I think, you know, another month of this, um, and I think you'll probably see some sort of agreement uh, with both sides, you know, falling back on, on what some of their initial goals and, and demands have been. Um, there's going to be an economic aspect to this too for Ukraine. They are entering a planning season. Um, they really have been a breadbasket. Um, it's it's been pretty remarkable what how Ukraine has become a net exporter of of agricultural products uh, over the last decade. And you know that's something else that I think is going to weigh on, on people's minds. And so far, you know, NATO is just not showing a willingness to supply Ukraine with uh, with advanced new platforms. And that's, I think, something else that's gonna, gonna play through here. On, on the, the question of chemical and nuclear weapons, you know, to me, those are just, those are really are gonna be the interesting, they're not red lines yet, but I think that's, that's really where you start getting the questions about, oh, will NATO really continue to step back if Russia were to use tactical nuclear weapons or nerve agents in uh, in um, in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know where that is, but I, I think that's the upside scenario for defense here. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about even more, you know, the risk of a wider conflict, the risk of, of some kind of response, uh, you know, above you know, what we've seen so far out of, out of NATO countries and the United States. And on the sanctions and Export controls, you know, I think you're really looking at something like Iraq in the 1990s, you know, so long as Putin is in power or someone like Putin is in power, the U.S. Does, is just not going to want to see this guy in, in a position where he can, you know, repair, rebuild, 
and create an even more potent military. So we're facing the same problem, you know, on a, even maybe a larger scale in 2025 or 2028. Um, uh, so I, I absolutely think that the export controls and uh, most of the sanctions will, will stay in place. Energy looks like it's still going to be somewhat off bounds just because of the, you know, Europe can't turn on a dime um, in reducing their energy dependency. But, you know, as some of these infrastructure investments come into play, um, maybe, you know, that, that's going to be an easier one to, to add to as well, too. And uh, your take on the most important things the audience should be paying attention to in the week ahead? Um, well, look, obviously the budget rollout and, and kind of the congressional reaction to that um, <clears throat> doesn't look like they're doing the usual oversight hearings this week. Um, although there are a couple on um, things like conventional munitions um, that I think are going to be pretty important, uh, uh, just, you know, the health of that industrial base. Um, I, I, you know, we didn't comment, and maybe you did last week on your show, but the North Korean ICBM test is pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I believe CSIS is doing a, an event on North Korean missiles. So that's something to keep an eye on as well, too. And uh, it is our next guest, Tom, uh, Dr. Tom Carrico of CSIS, that's engaged uh, with that. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining us for one of our regular looks at air and missile defense, as well as long range strike issues is Dr. Tom Carrico, who is the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Tom, welcome back. It's always great to have you on the program. Well, Vago, always a pleasure. I mean, it is the Defense and Aerospace Report. It's the the Ohio State University equivalent of defense podcast. So thanks for having me. <laughs> I appreciate that extraordinary plug, Tom. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, slightly uh, embarrassed and uh, clearly uh, I should not make any Michigan comments on this program, uh, I guess, going forward uh, <laughs> for, the, for this, for, for a sense of, uh, sense of safety. Um, let's uh, start off uh, with uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war. I mean, obviously, this is a missile war. You and I were talking last week, and you made that uh, clear, and I thought that that was kind of a trenchant point. Um, talk to us a little bit about the capabilities the Russians are deploying on a regular basis uh, and what that tells us about uh, the future of warfare, right? I mean, almost everything we're seeing in the Russian sense is reflected on our fears and concerns about how the Chinese uh, will fight. The Chinese have made a massive investment in their missile capabilities. Uh, and the Russians also deployed the Kinjal, uh, uh, um, hypersonic missile. They've deployed it for the first time uh, in combat. That's caused concern. First, let's talk about just the general missile arsenal they've been using and how. And then I want to follow up a little bit on how we should be thinking about this hypersonic capability, given how concerned people are uh, that they've de debuted it, which, which was obviously Moscow's intention. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I, I like the uh, the missile war uh, uh, phrase there. You know, look, as uh, uh, to paraphrase uh, James Carville, the political strategist, it's about the missiles, stupid. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of these things going, uh, coming and going. Uh, who knew air defense was so important? Lo and behold, uh, you know, the uh, General Milley said five years ago when he wrote out the Army's modernization strategy, read through a couple priorities, and he says, uh, but none of this matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. Uh, and again, look, look at the demand signal, the Slovakians, the, the U.S. pulling, you know, I guess, stolen Soviet kit out of the warehouse and sending it over there with all uh, expedition. Uh, so, you know, fascinating uh, dynamics. Uh, 
so you mentioned, you know, what kind of missiles looked a whole bunch of them. We've got a, a CSIS graphic that rolls up the, the I guess we're up to eight or, or so different uh, kinds. You, you know, the calibers, whether it's sea launched or air launched calibers, I think probably uh, take pride of place here. That's those are the cruise missiles. I'm not really expecting uh, a lot of those are are being shot down. Uh, uh, you know, there was a, a Reuters story may or may not be true that there's some according to the source, uh, 20 to 60 percent failure rate of air launched cruise missiles fired by Russia. It's astonishing. Uh, it's almost so high as to be uh, not believable. But, you know, there, there could be a lot of different things going on there. Uh, uh, Vago, you, you plugged the uh, the Kinzel. Uh, I think everybody needs to just calm down uh, about this so-called hypersonic uh, missile. Uh, the Kinzel is essentially a variant of the ground launched uh, Iskander missile. Uh, one of the missiles launched from the Iskander uh, launcher. So it's it's just essentially a somewhat maneuverable uh, air-launched ballistic missile. Uh, is it different? Yes. Uh, were there perhaps some uh, ulterior motives in terms of messaging on the part of the Russians for, for rolling this baby out? Possibly. It was, after all, in the uh, list of worthies that Vladimir Putin had in his, you know, big scary list of advanced missiles like the, uh, you know, intercontinental underwater uh, uh, torpedo from a couple of years back. So there could be that thing. There's some speculation out there about the Russians running out of PGMs. I'm skeptical about that. I suspect they've got quite a bit more. Uh, but you're right to flag, uh, you know, all this uh, drone and missile stuff uh, on the Russian, on the Ukrainian side. There's the they're firing some old Tachkas as well. And of course, the Bayraktar uh, has ballads, uh, you know, composed uh, to its uh, to its name. So uh, lots of things coming and going. And the, to the extent to which the javelins uh, and, and bad morale and lack of food and everything else are slowing down the ground offensive, uh, you know, uh, the standoff capability is uh, uh, they're, they're, they're reaching to. Again, over 1,200 missiles uh, fired uh, to date. Um, I, I thought that that was, uh, I love I love that line, right? Who knew air and missile defense would be so important? Yeah, you know, exactly. So there's sort of a big, big, big duh element uh, in that. And 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 uh, the point of, hey, everybody calm down, right? I mean, Kinshaw is, is a missile just like any other missile uh, and another right. uh, weapon uh, at, at the end of the day. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Ukrainian uh, air and missile defenses, because what the Ukrainians have managed to do is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, their combat aircraft or Soviet air, aircraft, but they're using using them with Western tactics. Uh, they're using their S-300s. Talk to us about sort of the, the grid that they've created from the high end down to the low end and how that's confounding uh, Russia's ability to create air superiority over Ukraine. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of factors there. Uh, good luck and perhaps some guardian angels uh, may be among them. I think it's it's actually nothing short of astonishing that the, that the Russians have not, did not establish uh, air superiority, and it's one of the one of the think one of the mysteries uh, that folks will be writing dissertations about for for you know many years to come about what the heck happened, why didn't they suppress this? Uh, and look, there's a lot of speculation here. I think you're you're alluding to everything from the very very low end stingers for the fixed wing and rotary wing uh, stuff to the to the the, the mid tier and the, the S three hundreds. There's not you know perhaps I think we're seeing a little bit of triumphalism on the part of the West about this stuff. I, I do fear for its uh, durability, uh, although at the very low end, the, the stingers and javelins come in are, are very promising. So uh, it could be that the, the, the Ukrainians you know, distributed this stuff, uh, kept them turned off and had some deception. Uh, again, I worry about its durability. There was a great 
story in the New York Times about the uh, interviewing a Ukrainian pilot who's just going up constantly. Who knows if he's still alive? And they've got, what, 55, 50 uh, some uh, aircraft uh, to go up against hundreds of, of Russians. So uh, I, I do. I, I'm not so uh, overconfident about this stuff. Hopefully the, that Slovakian S-300 uh, and the, the American uh, uh, air defenses that, that come out of storage will get there uh, in time to, to do some good. I want to go uh, to um, your uh, to North Korea's missile threat and then uh, to CSIS's hypersonic uh, defense report. Uh, but really uh, quickly, what are some of the other things the West should be doing to bolster um, Ukrainian uh, air and missile defenses? Because as you as you rightly said, Tom, I mean, this is tenuous. The Russians are regrouping. The Ukrainians do have some advantage and are winning back some territory now. Uh, and the Russians have taken terrible casualties, but we know that they're just going to, you know, grind on and, and you know, quantity has a quality all its own. What are some ways that the Western alliance and NATO can be helping the Ukrainians in a more meaningful way and do it faster on the air and missile defense side of things? Yeah, so I think the the Slovakian, you know, any uh, kit that the, the Ukrainians are somewhat trained on to get to them as soon as possible is great. I suspect the future, you know, that, that stuff's going to be, important, but there's limited quantities of it. Uh, it's a low, de- low density, high demand asset, as they say, and that's going to be true in, U- in Ukraine as it is everywhere. Uh, and eventually, you know, uh, one has to suspect that eventually it will be suppressed in the absence of the Ukrainians getting the upper hand with, you know, those MiG-29s that it looks like they're probably not going to get or something equivalent. Uh, you know, they're not going to get that, that NATO fl- no-fly zone. Uh, so in the absence of that, you have to think that eventually the, these things will, will be suppressed. But uh, the key may be just to buy enough time, to buy enough time uh, for the ground offensive to be turned back as apparently reportedly it is in, in several places, or at least facing a lot of bog down. And you know what? That's that's the purpose of air defense after all, which is not to be uh, an astrodome uh, to, to sit there and play catch all day, uh, but to buy enough time to bring your forces to bear uh, uh, to uh, affect the political calculus, uh, as it were. That, that's true everywhere. Um, let me uh, take you to North Korea's ICBM. On Friday's show, we discussed that. Dr. Patrick Cronin of the Hudson Institute uh, talked about that test and what does it mean in the context of Asian security. Uh, you, uh, in your note to me, characterized it as, well, t- tell us tell us what's special about this uh, weapon and what makes it so interesting, because obviously Pyongyang has been using, right, I mean, the world is focused on this, on this on a, uh, uh, crisis in Ukraine, uh, or rather Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's not just an idle crisis. Uh, to advance its own missile capability. Yeah, I think the technical term you're looking for, Vago, is a beast. Uh, this is a beast of a liquid-fueled, but also mobile, uh, uh, ballistic missile. I mean, it's enormous. Its range is tremendous. I'm saying 15,000 to 16,000 uh, kilometers, which basically means anywhere in the world. Gives them a whole lot of flexibility. Uh, you know, it may not be exactly that, but this is a a very large uh, missile. Now, uh, We've seen this coming. Uh, it's not a real surprise. That I think the name that's being applied to this is the Hwasong-17. Um, they paraded it last year, as I, uh, if I recall. And, you know, this, this is not a surprise. Uh, it's, it's the expectation, the anticipation of increased North Korean uh, missile capabilities that is, frankly, one of the reasons that last year the Biden administration, was, in fact, it was a year, uh, year ago and a week last week, uh, that the Biden administration greenlighted the awards for the next generation interceptor, right? Uh, the, the next wave to, re- to uh, follow and perhaps uh, ultimately replace 
uh, the ground-based interceptors that, you know, were deployed in the 2004 timeframe and used 1990s technology for their kill vehicle. So this is, this is it makes sense uh, to not really uh, try to catch up, but to outpace uh, the rogue state ballistic missiles. So that, that's, I think, the uh, an important factor going on there. Um, uh, two uh, additional, give us uh, a quick update on uh, the missile uh, defense uh, review. Uh, missile defense review is coming out, uh, as you put it, right? Everybody look busy. Uh, what do we expect <laughs> the document to tell us? Yeah, well, I think about two, three weeks ago, uh, the newly uh, confirmed uh, Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Sasha Baker, say that five times fast, uh, testified on the Hill and had a, a good description of uh, both nuclear and missile defense policy. Probably a, probably the closest we've seen to a preview of these reviews, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, the, you know, I think in terms of the missile defense review, there's, a, there's an opportunity here that the Biden administration has an opportunity to do, but I would say that the Trump administration didn't do, and that is to adapt U.S. missile defense policy uh, programs and budgets to the you know, 2018 uh, and subsequently reality of, of great power competition or whatever it is you want to call it. And so what that means concretely is, hey, it's great that we're doing this rogue state ballistic missile defense stuff. Got to do it. I just talked about NGI and its importance. But this is a real opportunity to adapt and to move towards uh, the likes of adapting air and missile defense regionally for, for Russia and China. I mean, again, Ukraine, hello, the, who, who knew air defense was so important? But the, concretely, what the NDS and I expect the MDR will talk about is China is the pacing threat. And China is the pacing threat for air and missile defense is going to put a, a special salience on things like the defense of Guam. PB-22 was the first time that 360-degree that air missile defense for Guam uh, was in any uh, budget uh, request. Right. And so I'm going to be looking for that. I'm also going to be looking for, of course, NGI's uh, continuity, space-based sensors and, and hypersonic strikes. So, uh, but on the policy side, I'm hopeful that there'll be a fair amount of continuity uh, with the past on the big issues, uh, but there's some new developments to, to make these adaptations. Um, I mean, to, to your point, Tom, right? I mean, air and missile defenses were regarded, uh, especially with the end of the uh, Cold War, um, sort of an orthodoxy, right? I mean, it was a small community that was making this case, uh, and and the best we got were sort of one-offs, right? That the uh, Iranians might pop a missile off at us, or the North Koreans uh, would write Rodong and all of that, uh, driving that uh, at that point. But we really do need to start considering bigger and broader air and missile defenses, don't we, for the United States, given the kind of capability Right. And, and more capability in places like Pearl Harbor as well. Right. I mean, are we yeah. sort of whistling past a, a little bit of a graveyard here in in just tailoring our capabilities for sort of one offs as opposed to actually a much broader ballistic missile defense uh, structure? Well, I, I would agree with that. I've been the skunk at the garden party for the past five years on this point, um, but I would just sort of slightly disagree. It's not about just about the ballistic missile uh, threat. It's about the everything. It's the all uh all missile threat, uh, again, the cruise missiles, the hypersonic things, all this kind of stuff. And for the likes of Russia and China, this is not about the ICBMs. As I said before, it's, I think it's more about the regional stuff. And so uh, the salience, the things that I'll be looking for is, okay, how, how are, we, are we moving? Are we making some progress to uh, air defense uh, of, of, of Pearl Harbor? Uh, are, we, are, are, we, uh, are we moving towards uh, homeland cruise missile defense, for instance? Uh, is the glide phase interceptor being on track uh, for deployment in this decade or not? Things like that. So it's in so many ways, the non-ballistic threat 
uh, that is uh, getting so uh, outsized uh, and increasing in salience, as opposed to the the ICBMs of yesteryear. Yeah, we still got to worry about those things, but it's the the hypersonic uh, defense, it's the cruise missile defense, it's the counter UAS stuff that you know is here. That's the the, the threat of the day uh, and, and of tomorrow, and that's what we got to do more about. Uh, absolutely, stand uh, corrected. So um, I, I should have uh, I should have put all of those capabilities. Oh, I know you do. Uh, I know you bucket, know. As as yeah. opposed to uh, putting it that way. So, I mean, thanks for that. Let me ask you uh, very quickly, we've got about uh, 30 seconds left. Uh, your hypersonic uh, defense uh, report, uh, talk to us about complex air defense and what some of your conclusions were. Yeah, so thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Uh, this is a report Ms. Al Dahlgren and I put out uh, last month. Uh, and it uh, points out that, you know, whereas in the, in the 1990s and, and early aughts, we were focused on that, the big lumbering predictable ballistic missiles, the threat's gone lower as we were just talking about. Uh, and there's this felt sense out there in the, in the, in the interwebs that, uh, and the press that, uh, that hypersonic uh, missiles are unstoppable. And the, the contention of this report is that that's not the case. Uh, that in fact, if you think about the phenomenon uh, that it is by definition uh, endoatmospheric, uh, it, it becomes, it emerges at, on the other side as a, a complex air defense problem. And it turns out we're good at complex air defense. If you can track it, you can kill it. Uh, and I, I expect that there's a whole lot of promise there. We talked about the importance of, of maintaining space sensors and, and glide phase interceptor, but then also going forward to some, I would say, revolutionary uh, uh, capabilities as well. Uh, Tom, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Look forward to having you back on in order and, and as well to talk about some of the broader um, policy uh, treaty and other issues as nations move to more national missile defenses is something that I'd like love to have a deeper conversation with you uh, the next time you're on. Thanks again for joining us. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.